Turn with me to Mark chapter 5, verse 22. Mark 5, 22. A few years ago, I was having lunch with a friend of mine named Terry, and he did something that I've I learned from. I thought this was a good idea. Um, he, our waitress came and brought us our food, and he said, her name was Anna. He said, Anna, um, we're going to pray over our food. Can we? Is there anything going on in your life you'd like us to pray for? And she stopped, and she just sort of looked at the ceiling and pressed her lips together like she was trying to think of something to say. And then she said in a real soft voice, pray that I'll get over my heartbreak. Now, here's what's interesting about that. We had seen Anna two or three times that day. She had come and greeted us. She would brought us our waters. She had brought us our food. She told us about the specials, etc. So we'd seen her several times. Never in any of those interactions had she conducted herself like someone who was heartbroken. She was very punctual and cheerful and professional. She had it all together. But then when you asked her, she had a broken heart. And it made me remember, it just reminded me of what I've learned in doing ministry, and that is people are fighting battles you can't see. I guarantee you, if I went up and down these aisles, and I'm not going to do it, so don't worry, but if I went up and down these aisles and I just stuck a microphone in front of your face and said, what is, what is your hardest struggle right now? You'd hear stories that you had no idea of. We'd all be in tears before we were done because what I learned is there aren't any perfect families and there aren't any perfect lives. That teenage girl that you think is so pretty and popular, she's so insecure, she doesn't want to go on living sometimes. That couple down the street with the nice expensive cars and the well-manicured lawn, he's about to file for divorce this week. That family that you see in church and you think, boy, what a perfect family. They've got an older son that won't talk to them. Or they've got a parent with Alzheimer's and they're trying to figure out how to care for her. Or they just got a bad uh, diagnosis from the doctor this week. Or one of them is, is struggling with a, an addiction to pain medication. Something is going on in that family that they're struggling with. And here's the thing. Every one of us struggles, but some of us are at the end of our ropes. I, I, I'm thankful for what Nathan did this morning. We did that. Nathan led us in, the, uh, Robert led us in a similar time uh, in the early service. We need, as God's people, to share our burdens with one another. That's the definition of what a church is. It's a group of people that bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And here's the thing. When Jesus was here in the flesh, he went to those kinds of people. I got, I got a packet in the mail some years ago when I was a younger pastor, um, and it was, it was from one of these kinds of guys that us preacher boys love to read and, and go to his conferences and listen to his podcasts, and, and he was uh, giving us this opportunity. He said, this is a way for you to uh, reach business people in your community, and it was a leadership conference that you could simulcast, and, and you could invite all the business people in your community, say, hey, send your executives to us, send your managers, and, and he said, here's the thing. You, if you do this, you can call yourself the church that takes care of business. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty smart. And, and it hit me, and I think it was the Holy Spirit because I'm not this deep by nature. But it hit me, hey, everybody wants those people. I mean, no offense, some of you are very successful in business, and I'm glad you're here. Keep doing what you're doing. You're, you're helping the economy. Do it with integrity. God bless you. But everybody wants you as part of their organization, their church, their group, but who's reaching out to the people who are struggling just to breathe? Who's saying, I want to be the church for those at the end of their rope? I want to be the church that takes care of the people who can't take care of themselves. See, that's the church of Jesus Christ.
And in the story today, we're going to look at Jesus and how he dealt with people who were hurting. And I want you to see a couple of very important things about him. Now, this is going to be a familiar story to some of you, but this is a story um, where Jesus deals with people who are right on the verge of life, where, where life is at its, at its most difficult. So let's pick up with verse 22 of Mark chapter 5. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Remember those words. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed." Now, I want to talk about these two people real quickly. First of all, Jairus, he's a synagogue ruler, and that does not mean he is a clergyman. He's not a rabbi. This was a lay person. The role of synagogue ruler was given to someone who was prominent and respected in the community because their job was to make sure that there was someone who was ready to teach every Sabbath day, that the, the synagogue was kept, maintained well. He was not a janitor. He was a manager. He was like a building manager or, or a manager of the community. So he had tremendous respect. Now, keep that in mind when you think about this. This man goes to Jesus and falls down on his knees in front of him. And to do that in that time meant, I'm saying goodbye to the respect of my neighbors. I'm saying goodbye to any position of esteem I hold in the community because most people had questions about this guy, Jesus. He didn't, he didn't fit in with the religious establishment. There was something wrong with him. And so for Jairus to give obedience or, or to give allegiance to Jesus in this way meant he was surrendering a lot. But you know what? Any of you who have been parents, you would do the same. You would pay whatever price. If someone said, okay, I want you to, I want you to saw off your right arm to save the ch life of your child, absolutely. Where's the saw? I want you to die so that your child can live. You bet. You bet. I'll do it. Just sign me up. I mean, that's, that's part of the definition of being a parent is you suddenly realize, I will do anything for this child. And for Jairus, he was at the end of his rope. My 12-year-old daughter, the light of my life, is at the point of death, and I don't care what happens to me now. I don't care if the, the synagogue leaders, the, the religious leaders take me out and stone me. I want her saved, and you're, Jesus, you're my only hope. Now, on the other hand, here's this woman who comes, and we don't know her name. We know her medical condition because it says she had, she had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And the scholars say it's undeniable. It's talking about menstrual bleeding. It's talking about uh, something that didn't just debilitate her physically, but rendered her, according to the Jewish purity laws, rendered her unclean all the time. She could not enter the temple. I mean, the, the purity laws of the Jews were, were written with a good purpose. They were written to remind people of the holiness of God. You can't just go around uh, mistreating your neighbor and doing ridiculous things and then go into God's presence. You have to get right with Him. But this purity law was now keeping this woman from worshiping her God in person. It also meant that anyone who touched her was then ritually unclean. So we can bet, although Scripture doesn't tell us, we can bet that if she had been married before this, she wasn't married anymore. Men in that culture would not stick with a woman who they couldn't touch. 
And she'd lost all her money, too. And this isn't to dig at doctors or the medical profession. There was no cure for this kind of, of, of illness in that time. She'd lost everything. And now, and now she reaches out and just touches the little tassel on the end of Jesus' garment that all Jewish men wore as observant Jews. She touched it thinking, maybe there's a chance that his power will flow into me and heal me. And this is what happened. Verse, um, verse 29. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I want you to think about this. The reason she was trembling to tell him, to confess that she had touched him, the fact that she had touched Jesus meant he was now ritually unclean. And a prominent, I mean, a, a religious teacher like Jesus, even if he was seen as sketchy by some, he could have had her stoned for that. But Jesus stops and he turns to her and says, your faith has healed you. Do you know that in Greek the term healed means saved? It's the same word. Jesus wasn't just telling her, okay, you're well. Go, about, go on about your business. He was telling her, you now have faith in me. That means you're saved. That means your soul is mine. That means you are forgiven. That means eternity is yours. That's why Jesus stopped. He wasn't trying to make this woman feel bad. He was trying to tell her, you are set free. Because Jesus wasn't just concerned about her body. He was concerned about her soul. But there's another man standing there who's hurting. What about him? Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Now, I want you to put yourself in his shoes and think how those words hit him and how much he must have thought to himself, man, if I... If I just would have come to Jesus sooner, why did I wait so long? Was my position in the community so precious that I couldn't, I couldn't come to this man a day or two ago when something might have been done? Because I know, I know when something bad happens to someone we love, we immediately blame ourselves. Verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, which is kind of peculiar. We see Jesus do this on a few occasions where he takes these three with him. He says in, in verse uh, 38, when they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. Now, this is interesting. You may not know this, but um, in Israelite culture, especially in that time, but even today in the Middle East, mourning and weeping are seen as something you do outwardly. Now, we, in white American culture, we're very reserved with our mourning. You know, if, if, if we do kind of lose it in church or in, during a funeral service, we feel embarrassed about it. Oh, I'm, I'm just so sorry. That's not the case. In Middle Eastern society, they tear their garments, they weep aloud. In fact, in the first century, 
if you had a loss, if, if someone passed away in your family, you wanted as many people weeping and wailing as possible. And so wealthy people would actually pay people to weep. Can you imagine being a paid mourner? Not, not, doesn't sound like a promising career field, but there was, there was plenty of growth opportunity. I mean, death was just as, the death rate was just as high back then as it is now, still 100%, just like here. Um, and, and you notice these people are already at Jairus' house when Jesus gets there. So in a way, they were sort of like ambulance chasing lawyers. They're like, okay, there's been a death. I'm going to show up and start crying, and, and they'll give me a check later. And this is why when Jesus walks up and says, she's not dead, she's only asleep, they laugh because their, their weeping is not sincere. They're, they're doing this for a paycheck. And that's why Jesus says, y'all get out. Get out. I, you don't need to be here. Mom, dad, you three, you come with me. Now what happens next? Verse 41. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Anybody know what language Talitha Kum is? It's Aramaic. See, the whole New Testament is written in Greek, but Jesus and his disciples spoke Aramaic, and the gospel writers had to translate it into Greek so that the larger Roman, Greco-Roman world could understand the gospel. And for some reason, and we don't know why, Mark chooses to leave that little two-word phrase untranslated. I think, it's just my opinion, it's just my theory, I think Mark just loved the sound of those words, particularly because he knew someday Jesus is going to say to me, I say to you, arise. He goes on. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. And that last detail I love, and here's why, because it says to me that Jesus cares about the details of your life. Here's Jesus. He has just raised a child from the dead. And any one of us, if we had the power to do that, would be like, okay, I'm out. You know where to send me the check. Jesus, his first thought is, this poor little girl's been unfed for days. She's been sick at the point of death. She needs to eat. She's completely healed. Her appetite is back. You know what that tells me? That tells me God cares. God knows and God cares about the things you think are too small to even mention. That little nagging illness you have or that anxiety you're ashamed to tell others about, whatever it is that's making you miserable, God knows, God cares. Tell him about it and tell your church family too. Now, is it any wonder that hurting people loved Jesus? Is it any wonder that people who were at the end of their rope couldn't get enough of him? What would it take for us to be the kind of people who attract those who are hurting, that people know, hey, I know that if I go to that person, if I go to that group of people, I'm going to get ministered to. I'm going to get comforted. You know, we can't raise the dead. And I don't know anybody in this room can, that can lay a hand on someone and heal them. But we can do two things that Jesus does here, two things that will make us the church that takes care of hurting people. Number one, Give them as much time as it takes, because it does take time. Give them as much time as it takes. Don't be in a hurry. I guarantee you this, friends. 
On your busiest day, you weren't as busy as Jesus. On your most hectic week, you didn't have as much on your plate as he did. Because here was Jesus' agenda. He had, to, he had to teach the most important lesson that had ever been taught. He had to liberate humanity from the wages of sin and death and hell. And he had to teach 12 knuckleheads how to carry on his movement after he was gone. He had three years to do it. That's not a lot of time. And yet, never once in the Gospels, never once does Jesus tell someone, I'm sorry, I'd love to help you. I've just got too much going right now. I'm sorry, I'm on my way somewhere else. Check in with my office, they'll, they'll remind me, and, and maybe we can put something together next week. No, every time someone with a legitimate need came to Jesus, he helped them. You know, the only time Jesus refused to do a miracle was when it could have helped himself. Hey, Jesus, um, we're going to crucify you unless you do a little trick for us. This is Herod on the day of his crucifixion. Jesus is like, I'm not doing a miracle for you. Hey, Jesus, prove that you're the Messiah and we'll leave you alone. No way. But someone with a real need, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, a man who had probably opposed Jesus in the past as part of the religious establishment, shows up weeping over his daughter. And Jesus says, where is her? Where is she? Let's go. Let's go. He went with him. And then on the way there, he runs into this other woman who is struggling with her own problem. And he stops for her. He took the time, not just to heal, but to save. He took whatever time was necessary. That's what Jesus' time was for, was for people. You know, when I was in seminary, I had my, my first ministry job. I was a, a part-time youth minister at New Hope Baptist Church up in Parker County, Texas, west of Fort Worth. Um, it was right in between Springtown and Azel and Boyd. Y'all know where that is, right? Somebody does. Anyway, yeah, shout out for Parker County. So um, the pastor of the church there was Jim Edwards. Jim had had his own carpet business. He was successful. God called him into the ministry, and he became pastor of New Hope Baptist, and that's the only church he's ever pastored. He's still there to this day. You know what I learned under Jim? I, I served under him for two years. The main lesson, I can, if I can gel it down into one thing, it's this. Whoever is in front of you at that particular moment. If someone comes to you and they're asking for help or they've got a question and they're expressing it out, whoever that person is, that is the most important person in your world at that particular time. Give them as much time as you need. Give them as much time as they require. I don't know that I carry out that lesson as well as Jim did, but I can tell you this. He's still at that church, and that church is not a mega church by any means, but it's a, it's a church that's healthy, because they've got our true shepherd who's taught them that people matter above all other things. And you may think, well, that's kind of a silly uh, philosophy because you, you'll kind of waste your time, won't you? And yeah, I'll admit there are times when I'm walking through life and I see someone and I'm like, oh, I don't have time for that person right now. I'm going to pretend I don't see them. Don't, don't look at me judgmentally. You do the same thing. You do, you're like, oh my goodness, I, I know how much she talks. And that's 20 minutes right there. That's 20 whole minutes if I stop and talk to her. Right? Let me tell you, you've heard this saying, no one on their deathbed ever says, I wish I'd spent more time in the office, right? No one on their deathbed ever says, I wish I hadn't helped all those people. Because the truth is, and we're going, to start, we're going to talk about heaven starting in two weeks, and I think it's going to be a great thing for all of us to, to talk about our future home. 
here's one thing that's good to do in this world that you'll never be able to do in heaven, and that's help people who are hurting because people won't be hurting in heaven anymore. And I do believe, I do believe there's going to be regret in heaven. I believe there's a lot of us who are going to say, man, why did I waste so much time when I could have helped so many people? Give them as much time as it takes. Secondly, do as much for them as you can. Again, I don't know anybody in this room that can heal with the touch of their hand. I don't know anybody here who can raise the dead. But you have some spiritual gift. God has blessed you with some gift of the Spirit, something you can do in a way no one else can that can bless other people. That's what spiritual gifts are for. Some of you are extremely wise, and you know how to walk through life. You know how to help people make good decisions. Some of you are extremely compassionate. Just walking up and putting your arm around someone puts them at peace. Some of you are prayer warriors. Some of you are incredible Bible teachers, and you can come alongside and and offer words of Scripture that fit the occasion just right. Some of you don't know what else to do, but you can mow their yard for them. You can keep their dogs for them. You can clean their house for them. You can do something that takes the burden off their shoulders. Do what you can do, as much as you can do, while you can do it. See, Jesus Jesus did miracles because He could. Some people ask, why did Jesus do so many miracles? It doesn't make sense. He's walking through the world healing this deaf person. Well, you know, He couldn't heal all the deaf people in the world. He's healing this blind person, this crippled person. He couldn't make all blind people see all all crippled people walk. I mean, there's billions of people on earth. Why did he focus on these? And my answer is, well, because he could. Theologians will tell you he did it as a sign because he wanted people to know that he was really the Messiah, and I agree with them. I think that's true. But I also think Jesus was like, listen, I'm here, and I've got the skills. I'm going to use them. I enjoy doing this. I hate seeing people in pain. And by the way, and by the way, someday when I'm king of this place, there's not going to be any more of this stuff. Nobody's going to die anymore, and nobody's going to be sick, and nobody's going to cry tears of of sorrow. I'm going to wipe those tears away. So when I'm doing this, I'm giving you a preview of what you can expect from my administration someday. And get this. When we help somebody who's hurting, even if all we do is just sit with them quietly for a couple of hours so they know somebody else cares... Even if that's all we do, you know what we're doing besides just serving our Lord? We're giving them a little bitty foretaste of the world to come. We're saying, I believe in something greater than this. And I'm giving you a hint, as best I can, that someday all this is going to go away and it's going to be replaced by something far, far better. I just want to say two things real quick before we close. Couple of, um, couple of important notes so you don't misunderstand me. Number one, don't misunderstand me to think that we're all supposed to be naive fools, okay? Easily conned, easily taken in. I will confess to you that when I first got into the ministry, I was very idealistic and I got taken in by people who had stories of woe and I gave church money, and I gave my own money to people who told me a tale of woe, later to find out that they had made it all up, I could tell you some stories. Oh, yes, I could tell you some stories. And yes, it will happen. Be compassionate, but don't be a fool. Be compassionate, 
but don't be naive. Ask questions. Most people aren't that clever. They tell a story. They don't expect you to ask a couple of qualifying questions. When you ask those questions, you find out their story doesn't add up, and you say, listen, I can't help you. You're lying to me, and that's okay. That is good to do. Don't waste your money on someone who's trying to con you. Secondly, money is rarely the answer. Please note that. Can we just all admit that sometimes we give hurting people money so we don't have to do anything else? We give them money so they'll go away and leave us alone. And money is really the last thing in the world they need at that moment, at least cash money. I mean, sometimes sometimes loaning a friend something or giving a friend something is, is the perfect thing. It's exactly what they need. But often giving them cash doesn't solve the problem. It makes it worse. What they need is someone to walk them through the situation, help them make good choices, learn from this, get better, move forward. It's not about the money most of the time. But it is about being there for them in the love of Christ, showing them who he is. See, John Lennox is a math professor at Oxford and a follower of Christ, if you can believe that. He writes uh, about years ago when he was touring Eastern Europe, and he visited Auschwitz. And while he was there, he met another tourist, a lady from South Africa who was of uh, a Jewish heritage. And she was there, and she told him, um, my, my parents died here, and I've never been here before. I, I needed to come. It, it cost a lot, but I needed to come and see where they died. I need to process this. I need to understand this. And so he spent the whole time in the tour talking to her, and they saw they saw all there was to see. They saw the sign on the gate outside that said, work makes you free, that, that mocking statement of the Nazis. They saw the, the gas chambers. They saw the ovens. They saw the, the clinic where uh, the t terrible experiments were done on children. And in the midst of all of this, this woman is, is weeping, and she finally turns to John Lennox, and she says, and what does your religion make of all this? And I think a lot of us have faced that question. If you believe in this God of love, this God of power, why can he have a world like this where this kind of stuff can happen to me? And Dr. Lennox was very careful to say, listen, I respect your pain too much to think that I can just explain away everything with a few words, but here's, here's what I know. And, and now I'm quoting him. He says, you know that I'm a Christian. That means that I believe that Yeshua, that's the Aramaic word for Jesus, that I believe Yeshua is the Messiah. I also believe that he was God incarnate, come into our world as a Savior, which is what his name Yeshua means. Now, I know this is even more difficult for you to accept. Nevertheless, just think about this question. If Yeshua was really God, as I believe he was, what was God doing on a cross? Could it be that God begins just here to meet our heartbreaks by demonstrating that he did not remain distant from our human suffering, but became part of it himself? For me, this is the beginning of hope, and it's a living hope that can't be smashed by the enemy of death. The story does not end in the darkness of the cross. Yeshua conquered death. He rose from the dead, and one day as the final judge, he will assess everything in absolute fairness, righteousness, and mercy. There was silence. She was still standing, arms outstretched, forming a motionless cross in the doorway. After a moment, with tears in her eyes, very quietly but audibly, she said, Why has no one ever told me that about my Savior before? 
about my Messiah before. See, there's a lot of people in this world who are struggling, hurting. Some of them believe in God, don't understand why God's allowing this. Some of them don't believe in God at all. Some of them never give God a thought. But what they need to know is there is a God who not only sees what they're going through, who not only weeps alongside them, he entered into our pain. He carried our burdens. And by his wounds, we are healed. He became part of it. He's not indifferent. He's the answer to the pain they're experiencing. He is bringing a world that will wipe all tears away. And in the meantime, he's the one that can bring purpose and peace and hope and joy in the midst of whatever they're going through. But they will only know that not through the things that I say from this pulpit, not through billboards out on 45, not through gospel tracts, not through anything that we can do inside this building. They'll know it when we come alongside them and we love them like no one else does and we show them that there is a God who enters into their suffering just like we're entering into their suffering right now. Are you willing to do that? Right now, some of you know exactly who you need to reach out to and a lot of you don't, but at the very least, can you say, can you say to God, Lord, you know who you've brought into my life who's struggling, who's suffering. Show them to me this week and show me how to show them your love.